Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We're taking a little bit of a risk. We're recording our show early, um, which just assures that news is going to break uh, between the recording of it and when the uh, when the show goes live on Monday. But um, we have the athletic staff retreat next week, so we're going to be traveling on Monday. This week, we're pleased to be joined by our colleague Max Olson, uh, repeat I think repeat guest in calendar year 2023, uh, Max, on the on the Audible, which doesn't happen very often. So, you know, congrats, I guess. I don't know if that's an honor or a nuisance that we called you again. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an honor um, after how long I was like banned from being on the show, like just to knock out a few in a row. It feels, why, feels really nice. Why do all these people think they're banned from the show? I don't understand. I don't know. Um, well, we brought you on because you and Bruce wrote this great article uh, that went up Friday, Tampering Confidential. In college football, it's inevitable and impossible to stop. You guys talked to a whole bunch of coaches, in particular a group of five coaches, who have had their players poached uh, in the transfer portal. And, 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 you know, it's not happening the way it's supposed to, right? It enters his name in the portal. Everybody can log in and then start contacting them. We know it's a fact of life that these kids are being contacted and and probably know where they're either where they're going or what what schools are interested in them before they actually enter the portal but but this is some really good descriptions you know in detail of how it all works one thing that was a before we get into tampering you know it it, i'd heard about this from talking to other coaches maybe you guys can get into it a little more for the readers like the level of sophistication at power five schools now in terms of scouting other teams rosters. Yeah, it's really commonplace now. Um, I think that in talking to especially folks like that really um, do a lot of transfer recruiting over the past year, um, I think schools have staffed up on this. I think that they've, um, you know, especially like th- there's value in finding people that have like NFL scouting experience and like know how to deal with, um, you know, putting together practice squads and doing cuts and all that kind of stuff. Like I think a lot of that NFL scouting background kind of translate to how this is now um, because you're, you're looking ahead to who could potentially become available. And obviously in this sport, anyone can. So um, yeah, I think a lot of at, at the highest level, you have a lot of staffs that are really turning over every rock uh, in, in terms of like players out there who, who um, are playing well, all conference guys, but even guys that they just think have, have good potential potential that are, are very like under the radar guys. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty common now. Like if you've got, if you've got good players, like everybody else kind of knows about it now. And, uh, I, I've certainly talked to a few, um, you know, staffers at schools who are like, when they have like a freshman blow up, they're kind of like, okay, we know we're gonna have to like really fight every day for the next few years to hold on to this kid. I think one of the things that is really worth, you know, kind of tagging off this is, a lot of times fans and even media will see, oh, that guy, I remember that guy. He was a four-star out of high school. He was a five-star. But he might not actually have been, become that good of a college player. Like there's there's probably way more, name, certainly way more name recognition for a JT Daniels when he goes back in the portal because he was once a five-star and he started at USC than there is for like Jalen Key, who was a defensive back at UAB and you know, Jalen Key is the guy that a lot of people are, you know, like, oh, he can really play at a high level and be a big contributor for, you know, an SEC program. Whereas I I think it's the, 
where schools and, are. And real, he just committed to Alabama. And on he just Friday. committed to Alabama, like like a little bit yeah. as we're taping. But some of these other guys, I think they are much more hot commodities than they were as high school recruits where it's it doesn't always work that way where a lot you know it's not to say that some guy who's a five-star still might not be a big recruit i mean look south carolina lost a big time edge rusher to oregon who was expected to be really good and was um but a lot of times these guys are developmental i mean i did a story this summer not summer this uh middle of the off season on aj cornelius who is who's a new york kid new york city kid who started out at Rhode Island, Stefan Wheeler, who some of our listeners will remember as a good offensive lineman at Michigan State. He was a he was the guy who found him at Rhode Island. And he developed him, took a chance on him, and the kid turned out to be a really good FCS offensive lineman. He was a hot commodity this year and he signed with with uh with Oregon. But also I, you know, from talking to Wheeler, he was very candid. He was like, kind of pisses you off when you get these calls from coaches. They're poaching they're basically taking your player. They're and you know that's the that's part of the reality um i do think you know max and i talked about this as we worked on the story and and i know you you kind of mentioned it a little bit Stu, about as a group of five story and the more we talk this is this is this is rooted in group of five because those are the ones who are losing their best players but this is going on in the power five as well obviously pat narduzzi was not shy about speaking out last year when he was losing the best receiver in the country and he ended up jordan addison up going to usc like it definitely you know we talked to a lot of people including narduzzi for this story who are not group of five coaches who are who are dealing with it well tampering's going on everywhere um no question uh just real quick following up on the group of five thing so when I did my um, spring top 25, I ended up with Tulane being the only group of five school in it, and they were barely in it. And uh, now, as we know, a couple of the top group of five programs have moved up to the Big 12. But it also just felt like, you know, like Kent State, all their best players transferred, right? Like there was UTSA right before I was going to do it, their, their top star receiver transferred. And I was just like, you know, this is going to be harder to somebody will emerge, I'm sure, some great group five team will emerge. It's harder to say going in because their players are getting picked off. And sure enough, you have this stat in the story. So far, 199 um, group of five transfers in this cycle. 199 are transferring to power five schools. 64 of those 199 earned all-conference honors last season. It's like if you show up on one of those lists in November, right, in late November, early December, Max, as you – is it just like a given that guy's phone is going to then blow up? Yeah. If, if I were a coach, I'd be like, can we just stop making these lists? Like, can, can we not make it this easy <laughs> as a shopping list for these power five coaches? Um, you know, and you touched on something there, Stu, that was interesting that we didn't put in the story, but I, I was talking with one coach who has lost some really good players to the portal. And, and I think that you, you, even in the coach's mind, it's like, man, now when you've got some good talent and and this is a coach who thinks he's got some good players in his program, obviously, but like when you've got some talent, like, you need to like go win your conference when you do, you know what I mean? Because you just yeah. can't, you kind of can't like, um, and you need to go get your extension or that next job or whatever, because you kind of just can't assume that these, if you've got like good young starters and stuff, like you kind of can't assume these guys are going to be with you the next year. Um, and so it changes the, the, I think mentality a little bit here of the, and the urgency of like, when you've got some guys that are really having big years, um, you, you kind of hold on tight because you know, there's going to be a lot of defections and, and yeah, I think you're seeing, you know, certainly like some of, you know, a lot of those 
group of five players, like you can't uh, automatically assume that they were tampered with. Some of them believe they're power five players and they want to go play in the NFL. And some of them believe that they were big time players coming out of high school and they just weren't ranked high and they weren't really um, getting that many offers and stuff. So it's inevitable, but it certainly like makes it very clear, like what the talent food chain is in this sport right now. One other thing that, that we, we didn't end up ultimately using in the story, but along these lines, one of the group of five head coaches who'd come from, who'd been a power five coordinator made a really interesting point, which I hadn't really thought that much of or thought thought of before, which was he thought because of so many, you know, talented group of five programs getting picked apart now every year, it makes it, re- it's going to make it really hard for them to sustain success. So he said, if you are a, a power five coordinator, you sit there and go, you know what, I'm not taking a group of five job. I may just you know, I'm making a lot of money as a power five coordinator. I may stay here. And if I can hopefully get a, get a power five job, I'm going to, I'm going to sit on it and go for it. But otherwise the idea of going somewhere where you may go six and six, eight and four, nine and three, and then four and eight, because people start, you know, like that seems like it's very, very plausible. And it was interesting to hear that perspective because again, you know, you see some of the schools that get picked apart. Not all the kids leave, but a lot of them do. And a lot of them end up knowing where they're probably going to go before they even get in the portal. So you mentioned Lincoln, I mean, uh, Pat Narduzzi and Lincoln Riley. Pat Narduzzi is the one coach in here who was willing to go on the record. He has no regrets about the things he said last year about USC tampering with um, Jordan Addison. But it is... He's the exception. And so as I'm reading through this and I'm seeing one coach or not after another complain about it, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, are you going to do anything about it? Are you going to sit here and complain or are you going to turn people in? And then you guys get into that towards the towards the latter half of the article. Nobody's really turning anybody in because nobody believes anything's going to be done. One coordinator at Group of Five School argued. Who's the NCAA going to bang on this? They ain't going to bang on a blue blood program on this. I promise you that and until something really substantial is done. It's just going to keep happening. The other part of this is if you're going to be the guy or the program that's going to go on the record, you better make sure your house is clean before you start kicking up dust. So agreed to some extent. I mean, if, if it's just hearsay, like we think this guy or we, we know this guy was being can't. Well, what's your proof? We have no proof. Right. Then there's nothing to do. I do. think. But there's one coach in here who's like the player came up and showed him a DM he got from a coach at another school. Here's the here's the thing. If you're not willing to turn that over to the compliance office, right. nothing's, here's, nothing's ever going to change. Here's the thing with that. So there's a couple layers to this. The first part, and I'll get to what you just said, is one of those coaches who's an assistant said, no player is going to want to be a rat and do that. Right. And he said the, about the only way that happens where the player or his family speaks out is if they were promised something and they didn't get it. He goes, I don't think that happened. He goes, this is not a good story for anybody, right? In our story, Pat Narduzzi says on the record, I spoke to the NCAA and they haven't done anything about Jordan Addison. Like he says that. So there's mm-hmm. that. Um, people talk, you know, I, we had one of the coaches in here talk to his compliance person for one of the anecdotes. He, does no, he doesn't expect anything to come of it. Right. They just don't think anything's going to come of it. Um, so it's like if, you, you know, if the player is going to say anything, but then even about the on the record stuff, there was one of the group of five head coaches we spoke to who was, you know, really gave us some interesting insight, I thought. But one thing when I said, are you OK with saying this on the record? And at first he was. And then he was like, you know, 
I don't think, I don't think it's a good idea because then the NCA is going to call me and it's not worth like kind of knows it's not going to go anywhere, but it's going to be kind of a pain in the ass anyway. And so yeah, I, 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 and I had that same thing. I talked to a coach, you know, it's the lead of the story, but we talked to a coach a few weeks ago who was fighting hard to hold on to his best players. He knew that people were coming in. Um, he'd been able to um, kind of put a stop to those. And then, you know, a week later, if we talked, you know, he uh, uh, one of his big time players goes in the portal. And um, I wondered, is, is this guy going to come out and come on the record and say, I, I, I think this happened I, and, and um, you know, this is really dirty and, and all this stuff. And, and I think that you've, I've talked to plenty of coaches and, and ADs who have told me like very vivid stories of like this happened and we know this and this and this, and here's a little bit of proof we have and stuff like that. And ultimately when you ask them like, why don't you go public with this stuff? Um, they, they say they think that it, it'll look like sour grapes. They think it'll look, uh, you know, they still like the kid. They don't want to look vindictive. And I even talked to someone yesterday who, and part of the reason we reached out to Pat Narduzzi was I talked to someone yesterday who I asked him, you know, why don't you, they, they told me three or four examples of players that have been tampered with. I said, why don't you guys do anything about it? And and they looked at the way that that um, people, the public responded to Pat Narduzzi last spring. And I think that there was um, I, I think because people are obviously supportive of players going out and earning money and doing what's best for them. Um, you know, there was at least publicly uh, some backlash on Pat Narduzzi for coming out and, and trying to trash USC for this. I know among coaches Pat Narduzzi talked to, there was a lot of support for what he came yeah, out and did. Yeah, that's not my recollection of the reaction. I mean, I'm sure USC fans weren't happy about it, but like, I remember it being more like, like Lincoln Riley is kind of a villainous figure now in college football. And I feel like that was a big turning point in it, you know, and, and now to this day, we don't we don't actually know for sure that it happened, right? Pat Narduzzi is very convinced that it did. He says he talked to the NCA. Nothing's come of I it. I think it's hard to trail yeah. it in in like this. That's hard to prove. Case yeah. was okay. He and Caleb Williams are from the same part of the country around DC and Maryland. And was there a seven on seven connection? And so you know, is there anything against the rules for for one player to start talking to another player? And if that's the onset, now the flip side is from you know the pit part they could sit there and go yeah but if you really need if you really you know have knowledge that there's got to be a scholarship offer there you can you know a player's not just going to invite somebody in without having some kind of so it's like the collectives they're not going to go pursue somebody unless they know they want him now anybody could say yeah that's the blitnikoff winner we'll, we'll make room for him i mean for a year now i've just accepted that this is how it is um, if they want to try to do something about it, they would have to, you know, who's I mean, that? I think the NCA would give it. They is the NCA. The coaches, well, both. The co- like you said, the, the NCA would have to give immunity. They have been willing to do that in extra benefits, you know, other yeah. cases. That's how the that's how um, Ole Miss got in trouble. You can't punish you know, the they, player they, too. Like you got to give the no, player immunity. If he's I don't think they want to punish the player. Yeah. Now the player's not going to the player's not going to rat out the school that got him, but he might rat out. The other ones that he was considering. I don't know. Um, it, I just think that it's this is the way it's going to be. You can sit around and complain about it or you can join the party. And I think, you know, it, there's that quote in there that alludes to it, right? You better make sure your house. Like, I think probably part of the reluctance is you, they know that they're probably going to need to turn around and do it at some point. Well, you saw like what Narduzzi said. I thought it was interesting where he's like, he thought that, you know, that very same thing, you know, when it was a case of, 
I just think that they're afraid of what what's in their own own house, you know. And they, I got nothing. When Narduzzi said nobody nobody came after their players this year, and that he maybe have scared people away, and then maybe that's the case, or maybe he just didn't have any players people wanted. But um, that's where I, that's why I come back to the group of five. Like the power five teams can just play the, you know, they can just all play the game, right? Like this SEC team is going to poach this team's player, that team is going to poach uh, Big Twelve teams. The group of five can't do that. Like they're not going to replace their star player with because they're more of that caliber. Yeah. yeah. So it is like they, they, as the coach refers to it, they're they're a farm system. Um, that's been the case in college basketball, by the way, for a long time. Like you know, you Fair. you lose two guys to draft. Okay, who who's Valparaiso's best player this year? Like you know, and and that that's and it was a lot of it was grad transfers. You know. The, the, before the full-on immediate eligibility thing, like people would would rely on grad transfers for that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't have a great answer other than what you guys said. Like, if you've got you know uh, a, a NFL type quarterback and a couple really good receivers, like you better win the conference that year because there's no guarantee of it the next year. Um, speaking of all that, Max, you're the portal authority. We just got through the. I think we're mostly through the right like. The window, the portal mm-hmm. window closed for undergraduates. There's still some uncommitted kids out there, but for the most, like we know Peyton Thorne's going to Auburn now. You know, Bruce mentioned the UAB. I think Alabama's gotten two DBs in this period. That's right. Like, what are your main take? Who who are the big winners? Which, what schools do you think, you know, got either um, just really good players or like they had a certain need and they filled it? Well, let's let's set Colorado aside because they were the biggest yeah. winner and the biggest loser at the same time. <laughs> um, they're currently more on the they're adding. I believe they're at seventy five now. So if we're keeping track at home, I think they're seventy five out of eighty five. So, which seems like it wouldn't be hard to get to eighty five at this point if it's grad transfers. No, people like getting free educations, so it's not hard to find ten more guys <laughs> that would want to want to go to college. Um, I you know I think some of the winners in this period you know obviously like people kind of expect in this this spring window which is the first time we've done this this fifteen day period um, I think the expectation from talking to personnel people is that it wasn't going to be as loaded of a period of time in terms of just the the, the depth of and, and quality of player that is becoming available post spring right now a lot of times it's guys that um, you know maybe they get beat out or they don't really have a lot of guarantee that they're going to be a starter. Um, or it's, you know, obviously we're in a time right now when these, these people are trying to get back down to 85 scholarships. And so they're going to basically cut players too. So you have, you have to kind of, uh, in this pool of players, go, go out and find some good ones. Um, I think that there's, there's a lot to shout out though. I think, um, Auburn, you mentioned has picked up some important pieces, Peyton Thorne, obviously you could tell that Hugh Freeze was a little reluctant coming out of spring about just, you know, do we have the quarterbacks we need to really win, win games, throwing the ball. And so I think Thorne um, is, is a really interesting piece there. Doesn't mean he's automatically won it, but um, I think that, that that was the guy they wanted. It seemed like, um, and took him over Casey Thompson. Uh, They also added um, uh, Jaden Muskrat, an offensive lineman from Tulsa, Jalen McLeod, a linebacker from App State, Caleb Burton, a, a, Top 100 wide receiver from Ohio State, who's a freshman, who obviously not everybody can get the ball at Ohio State. So there's some of those guys that go in. Um, I think Cal's done a really nice job in picking up a bunch of of, of key pieces. I think they, they're one that had room to add a lot. Uh, I think Louisville has added some really good players. Um, you know that that will be able to play for them right away. Um, Oklahoma's had a few. Purdue's picked up a bunch. Um, you know there's there's still some big names out there. 
Um, obviously, USC has picked up a bunch of big ones uh, in this this period, too, with Emmanuel Pregnon, the offensive lineman from Wyoming, and Bear Alexander, the D lineman from Georgia, um, along with the DB from Alabama, they picked up Trequan Fagan. So USC, you know, loading up as always with the portal. Um, but I think this is kind of for, for those that have room to add right now, um, you can find some pretty good players, but there's also just a lot of guys that probably are going to be moving down to, to G5 or FCS. In an annual tradition, Northwestern added a quarterback. Um, I can't remember the last time they actually developed one out of high school. Uh, <laughs> Cincinnati starter last year, Ben Bryant. And then they got A.J. Henning, the, uh, you know, he's was Michigan's main return guy for the last couple of years. I don't know if he can catch a pass, but, you know, maybe this, he can is, break, this break explosive Northwestern offense. I mean, everyone's talking about it. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think so. So just to clarify for the listeners, undergrad the window for undergrads to enter the portal closed on may 1st yep you can grad transfer pretty much at any time Anytime. and so in terms of those 10 scholarships dion still has to fill and by the way i don't i don't really can you know i looking at some of the names that have drifted in there recently they don't strike me as louis uh maybe i'm you know but i don't know every player in the country so i just keep waiting for like some you know former five star or 800 yard rusher at a good school just is going to all of a sudden grad transfer and go to Colorado. Yeah. There's, there's a couple guys still out there. Um, Zachary Franklin, the wide receiver from UTSA um, who, who broke all of their school records. He's a first team all conference kind of guy. Um, Alton McCaskill, the running back from Houston who missed last season with a torn ACL. So, sorry, Bruce, toward, go ahead. Towards, towards what we were talking about before, but these aren't like, I don't, I think you have to almost like flip your thinking. These aren't guys who are former five-star guys, but these are guys who are really, you know, high level college players when they've actually, no, played. I mean, those two, those two will, would be, Th- those would be pickups. big pieces. If yeah, they I'm could just, pull I'm those just off. saying it's like, I think sometimes people are like, well, I need a splashy name. I want, you know, I, I want the guy. No, no, no. I, I'm saying it could be either. It could be a all conference group of five guy, or it could be bear Alexander who five-star guy who had just started to, you know, play a little bit his freshman year at Georgia. And that's that's a reputation. That's not like we watch the tape. USC fans aren't all fired up because they watch the Georgia tape. They're fired up because five star recruit. Sure, sure. And I think that Colorado is like, you know, Savelle Smalls was a five star recruit. He's going to Colorado. That'll be an interesting one if they can kind of bring out his best there. But but you're right, though, Stu, they, Colorado has taken a lot of younger players, um, I think, probably to help replace all these young players that they booted. Um, you kind of still want to have some balance to your classes. And, uh, you know, it's you, you, going to be very interesting to see, can, can they find enough guys that they think can really contribute at a high level there? Because um, obviously you already, already had some misses in the spring. Because they not only did they run off guys, Dion's not hiding from that, you know, some pretty good players, or, but relatively speaking by Colorado standards, left on their own accord. So, sure. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if that caught them by surprise or if they just don't care, like. That just gives us another scholarship to bring in somebody of our own. I don't know. Some of their some of the moves they're making right now too, like they've taken like twelve transfer defensive linemen. Like some of them, they just literally need people to play these positions that they have vacancy. I think they still need a couple running backs. There's a, a few spots like receiver they're still trying to take. So some of them, they just need to get back to uh, having a normal number of players at some of these positions. Yeah, well, I think it'll be tricky to get you know who you're going to have in your quarterback room when you've announced your son as your starting quarterback from the, the first day of the job. So it's like whoever goes in there knows they're not competing for the starting job. Right. And so, 
and you can only play one. So you need a free education guy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Possibly. The free, yeah, the free education guy sometimes, if he's just a guy, though, I don't know if you want that guy just playing, you know, if he has to play. Right. You know. So. Yeah, the, uh, the backup yeah, quarterbacks mean, right now are true freshmen, so they probably should that probably be good use of one of the ten scholarships left here is, is a quarterback who's played a little bit. All right, well, always good to talk transfer portal. Always good to have Max on the show. You were never banned. You will never be banned. Hey, Max, before before <laughs> Stu shoves you out the door, um, yeah. I do want to just ask one other thing, unrelated to the real, well, kind of unrelated to the portal, but certainly you are and you are a Nebraska grad and you live there um so they came through spring football our colleague mitch sherman has done a lot of good reporting on matt rules takeover there um both uh your mentor over there above your above your shoulder mr mandel and i both thought scott frost was going to do great he obviously didn't why do you like just this is a big open-ended question why do you think it is going to be different now well, you know, the Big Ten's never been easier, right? I mean, next year they'll have USC and UCLA, so that'll be a little bit different. Stu, um, Stu on the last episode of the Audible. Getting rid of divisions, that's going to be tougher, too. Stu yeah, on, the, on the last episode of the Audible, just he, like me, a little skeptical of Jeff Sims based on the Georgia Tech work. So Sure. Here, I'm, I'm being facetious. Your- no, I, I think it's obviously uh, a lot has changed in the last two decades to make this a tough job. Um, and I think that this is like, you know, Nebraska's roster is not in such bad shape that they're, you know, running off, you know, cutting 20 guys after the spring or anything. But certainly um, this is a staff coming in from the NFL who who's going to do things their way. And um, they've been able to flip the roster to some extent so far, have, have taken some transfers, not not like wouldn't say it's been necessarily like a big fast flip like you saw at USC or some other schools last year. But um, I think Matt Rule and his his coaches like are taking over at the right time. Um, you know, this is a program that I think can be competitive in the recruiting world. But from an NIL standpoint, they've got money. I think that um, if they can just like build like Nebraska has been able to recruit at a top 25 level um, very consistently um, over the years, even as bad as they've been. Um, and so I think like you can get players there. And I think that the expectations obviously have, have have sunk so much at this point that like, I don't think people look at this like, okay, he needs to be winning eight, nine games a year as fast as possible. Like I think when they get back to a bowl game, that will feel very good to people here in Nebraska. It's been a long time. Uh, it's been the longest time for any, um, you know, power five program right now uh, in terms of reaching a bowl game. And so um, I, I think that it's just going to take time. I just think, and, and the way that his contract, I mean, they've invested a lot of money in Matt rule and his coaching staff. And I certainly think Matt rule is going to get three, four five years to build this the way he wants to build it. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. And uh, I, I don't have a great feel for how good they're going to be in year one right now, but I, I do think he's been really well received here and is, is kind of saying all the right things and pushing all the right buttons. And um, I think that uh, I think he put it, brought a good staff together here. I think he learned a lot from the NFL. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic about it, but um, in terms of like, when's the, when's the payoff in terms of becoming a contender? Uh, I think it's going to take some patience. Which do you think would be better received? Making a bowl game in year one or stunning the recruiting experts and getting Dylan Rayola, obviously a legacy prospect to everybody, including myself. That's easy. (laughs) Go four and eight and get Dylan Rayola. I think, I think if, if you're putting that offer in front of Matt 
rule you'd probably take it right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the Royola thing is it's it's hard to get a great read on where that's at. I don't think it's over for Nebraska, but I think people certainly seem to think that uh, Georgia's in the lead on that one. And um, so, I yeah, I think people here certainly have, have a real affinity for – uh, for Dylan Rayola and, and his dad, uh, who who played for the Huskers, and and uh, obviously his uncle is the offensive line coach. I, I, that's a big one. That's a big one. If they could find some way to pull that off, um, it'd be huge in terms of having a guy to build around. Um, but yeah, I mean, this uh, truly like the sooner they get this thing to a bowl game, the sooner people will feel like okay, this is this is progress. This is kind of finally pointing back in the right direction. All right, since you always accuse me of running people off, Bruce, you you get to do it. <laughs> Okay, uh, Max, stay. Stu, you got to go. Um, <laughs> I got Damn, from, yeah, I that was great. You turned that right in my face. <laughs> Put it on a T form. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, all right, Max, we will look forward to seeing you. And do we get to call Stu Chicago your adopted hometown because you went spent four years, five years of your life there? No, th- I mean, no. no. I-, I like Chicago. I'm happy we're going to Chicago. How many years but, is it? Four years, five yeah. years, six years? What, what do you? Uh, no, I'm not uh, easy to uh, Tommy Cam, boy. I'm not Cam McCormick. I'm not, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Nick Starkle. I was there for four years. Fair, fair. I'm excited to see you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So post your job for free at linkedin.com audible. That's linkedin.com audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Bruce, let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first one's from Joe Koch. What does it mean to build a program like Alabama and Georgia? I'm a Longhorn fan, so I'm well aware of our arrogance, expectations, and failure to deliver year after year. It's not like Mac won with bad players. Doesn't everyone need good players to succeed? Um... I think what he's asking is how does Texas become Alabama or Georgia? Like why, why can't we have that? Right. Um, it's not, I, I would guess if you asked Mac Brown this question, he would say what it took 
to have that high level of a program in 2005 is completely different than what it would take now because what Alabama and Georgia have is not just good players, it's good infrastructure, right? It's Kirby Saban and then Kirby took this and and replicated it and made it even better, right? Like how are we going to allocate our allocate our person first of all you need money, you need a school that's willing to spend a ton of money. And then how are we going to allocate that money? Are we going to have how big a personnel department are we going to have? Uh, how many analysts are we going to have? Uh, you know what else it happens gonna... though, Stu? I think this is when Mac Brown was rolling, Texas A&M was not a top 25 program. I'm not saying Texas A&M is right now either, but you know, Baylor was terrible. Like Baylor got good towards the end of Mac Brown's time there. I just think it was basically Texas and OU because Bob Stoops had OU rolling. But and I'm not saying there's there's a very very limited number of players, but when Texas was getting the best players in the state of Texas, different story, right? And then I think it's developing them. I think the developmental piece was sorely lacking, and to me, that's the biggest thing. You know, it's good well, on that's, the, that's it's, because, it's good yeah. on good. Georgia's able to go good on good when Miami was great. You heard legendary stories of of you know great players against great players and how competitive it was i think it's really hard for them to do that because they for a long time they they lost their way and you'd hear stories even from the sark staff about how dysfunctional it was with tom herman and i think not with just with tom herman's regime so i just think it was hard it's been hard for them to develop players and that's but i think what he's saying and asking is like georgia and alabama have it all down it's procuring the talent it's developing the talent it's evaluating the talent like Mac Brown could just you're right. Like he could just say like, all right, who do we think are the 20 best players in Texas this year? And they, they would sign them. Not quite that close to that. But then what do you do with them once they get to campus? I mean, Mac had some really good assistants, right? Um, Dwayne Aquino is probably was probably the best DB coach in the country during that time. Maybe some of the recent Texas coaches haven't hired as well. But again, it's like start to finish. Kirby Smart has the um, resources and the infrastructure in place to not just sign number one classes, but sign the right guys, you know, because they do their own evaluations, retain them, uh, develop them, and then they come out the other end and, and, uh, and go to the NFL, like start to finish. And I don't think, I don't think many programs in the country have that. It's a really hard thing to achieve. Yeah, I think you need to know what it looks like. I think you need to have the culture Monday or Sunday through Friday to do it. And I think that's that part has been lacking because it's also an off-season program. And um, it's hard to get it back once you've lost it, right? And so I think that is the challenge that they're, that they're put into. It's having the right, the right players, not just the most talented ones in terms of the competitiveness and everything like that. So um sustaining it is hard but even getting to it is really hard and i think they're just you know i saw where where urban meyer had said that he thinks you know they're as talented as anybody they may have some frontline guys like that i don't think they have like the cordwood that that georgia and alabama certainly have right you know it's just it's just different now it's not to say it's endless right we saw they had a ridiculous array of receivers for a while in tuscaloosa and that dried up. Jamison Williams left and and John Mechie left. And then all of a sudden there was a huge drop off. The transfers they brought in weren't anywhere near as good or productive. And so, you know, it's it's hard. 
it's really hard to sustain it. And even the best at it sometimes have some drop off or also, you know, you do see, you know, when sometimes the culture or you have, you know, issues in your locker room or maybe, you know, some guys get in trouble. It's just, you know, I think it's, you're still talking about 18, 19, 20 year olds. It's not always, you can have everything right and it still go wrong. Um, our next one comes from Gregory. Love the show and all the work you both do. Thank you, Gregory. As a normal fan who is not a large donor by any stretch, if my team has been struggling with recruiting during the NIL era, who should I be frustrated, upset, concerned more with? The coaching staff or large donors of said team? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I don't know how you get upset with the large donors because they're just kind of, for the most part, a faceless thing. And like they're not, you're not required to... (laughs) There's not like, hey, you know, part of your job as a donor is to pay tons of money to a recruit who may or may not pan out. I think actually, you know, first of all, it's hard to separate. Like, are you not recruiting well in the NIL era solely because of NIL or are you not a good recruiter? But let's just say for the sake of argument that this program, and I don't know who he's referring to, um, has a great staff of recruiters. They've just stopped who, who you have an example? Well, let's just say Texas A&M has a ton of big money people, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it wouldn't shock some of us that if Jimbo Fisher goes five and seven, they will do a, an unfathomable thing, and that's buy out a, an insane amount of money. But that money is there. That money is there to give them, you know, amazing facilities and all these other resources. At the end of the day, I don't know how you how you could could fault them. I'm not saying like everything is right about this, but like, ultimately it's your coaching staff. You know, every job has its own inherent challenges and pressures, but it's the coach who goes into it and knows what they're getting to some, to a large degree. I think what we're seeing with collectives and which ones are successful and which ones are not is do they have the support of the administration? A lot of administrations, at least initially, and maybe even some to this day, were like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that because it's not, you know, it's a third party and technically by NCAA rules, they're not supposed to be certainly not running it, but even necessarily, you know, having too close a relationship to it. And because of that, that's how something like Jaden Rashada happens. Like the Gator Collective was just this, you know, basically like flat seat of the pants operation. Whereas Oregon's Collective is former Nike executives, former Nike marketing people. Like it's basically take, you know, the, 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 the philosophy, how they sign, you know, their top athletes endorsements and do it in college football. And we know that there's a strong tie already between the Oregon Athletic Department and Nike. So they're very effective. Um, I think if you've got a, just a cluster, if you've got a situation, certainly where you've got, you know, we're starting to see these schools where they have like three different collectives and they're not on the same page and, you know, it's just confusing. Like that's usually a product of the administration not stepping up and saying, hey, this is how it's going to go. I am sure that Kirby Smart and the Georgia administration has a very, you know, they may not say it publicly, has a very direct role in this is how the collective is going to work. Um, Alabama, any any of these big programs. It's just kind of like, all right, well, we're just going to sit back and let these rogue people decide who we can and can't recruit. That's, that's a bad, uh, that's not going to be a recipe for success. The last thing is just a quick, you know, we talked a lot about, and we did just now with Max a little bit about Colorado and can he pull this off, this massive rebuild? 
And Frank in Sacramento just says it's been done before. On November 30th, 2014, UAB decided to close down the football program. UAB football reopened three years later, 2017, with more returning scholarship players, 13, than Colorado has now, 12. I get the comparison, but I would say a big difference is UAB and Bill Clark had two years to ramp that thing back up once they decided they were going to go back in on football. They had two years to recruit. They they brought recruits in who weren't even going to play for a year. Uh, Dion's trying to do it in six months, or, or in this case, you know, in terms of post spring, like yeah, months. which is large. You know, like yeah, you're talking about a lot of positions, most notably the offensive line, are all co- cohesion cohesion jobs, and you're talking about guys who have no spring together to work together, and how that impacts the. They're going to have, and they're going to have some misses. Like they can't be a particularly um, strong vetting process to, to to bring that many transfers in at once. You know, but anything could happen, you know, like they could maybe this works spectacularly in year one. Um, maybe it's a total colossal failure. What is spectacular? What what, what by your definition of spectacular in year one? Is that just get to a bowl game? Go from one win to six? Um, given the schedule they're playing, I think that would be pretty, pretty good. But I mean, I don't know if that would make headlines. It would make headlines if Dion gets from one in 11 to nine and three or something like that. But if he gets to six and six, I think that's that's miracle work. I think if there's no cohesion and you've got bad attitude guys, and then the thing I think they're the most at risk of is okay, you've brought in some some good first string players. What happens when they get hurt? And the guys behind them, you know, was just like bodies out of the portal. You know, then then things could really go awry. So what does that look like? Two and ten, three and nine. Technically, that's still an improvement from last year. But when you're talking as big as he's talking, I think people would uh, rub that in his face. What's, so what is the drop off? Like four wins is a big improvement to go from one win to four wins. You think anything below that is going to feel very underwhelming and disappointing? Let's look at the schedule, shall we? Love to play this game. We know it starts out rough. Um, you're opening at TCU. Now, Nebraska is an interesting one because they're in rebuild mode, too. So you might say, oh, they're they're They got a head start because they weren't terrible last year. But it is still new coach, new culture, relying on a transfer quarterback and all that stuff. So like that would be my first one where like they beat Nebraska. I I would consider that a victory. You should beat Colorado State. That's two. And I one. don't expect them to win win at Oregon or against USC. So now you're two and three. No, you're two and three. Yeah, two and three. Go to Arizona. You're going to at ASU. Not a great team. It's a rebuild job in itself for a first time head coach. I mean, I think that's a that's another one. Like, and then they play Stanford. You know, it's not a stretch given, to think they could be three and four out of the first seven games. Yeah, and at that point, I think everybody would say this is going pretty well. Now, then you go at UCLA. You got Oregon State. You got Arizona at Wazoo at Utah. It's, it's a it's a more forgiving schedule down the stretch, but like I said, what kind of shape will the roster be in health wise by the time you get to that stretch? I think if they go, uh, let's say they, let's say they lose to both TCU and Nebraska, but then they win, they beat Colorado State, and then they win three conference games. That, uh, to me, that would be successful given where they were at. But I don't know how the public would like. Has Dion set the bar so high? 
that anything short of a bowl game, they'll be like, see, that didn't work. What would you think the best shot of those three conference ones would be Stanford at Arizona State and then what? Home against Arizona? Um, you're probably going to have to upset somebody. But also, like, you know, there'll be teams that we like. I think Oregon State could be pretty good, but maybe I'm completely They just wrong. won 10 games. Arizona, yeah. you know, Arizona um, has made progress under Jed Fish. But maybe they're going to go in the wrong direction. I don't know. I actually think Washington State's a team I'm concerned about, um, about possibly falling off the cliff a little bit. Really? So why is that? What's Washington State's identity now? I mean, Ben Arbuckle is a year, is a, year two is a of hot Jim, young uh, offensive coordinator. They have Cam Ward, who did some good things. Now they lose Dayon Henley, who is a who is a terrific linebacker for them. But remember, this is the same team that went into Wisconsin and beat the Badgers last year. And the Badgers are uh, coming to them this year. They are. Luke Fickle's first team uh, making that trip to Pullman. Uh, have you ever are, been to Pullman, That's why by they the have Pac-12s. That? Have you ever been to Pullman for a game? I've never been to oh, Pullman. Oh, man, this could be it, Stu. Got to change that. Mid-November, um, Pullman. Just be careful in that Colfax uh, speed ticket death trap that they have there i think that everybody's looking to pac-12 myself included and feeling like oh usc's gonna be really good utah's gonna be really you know like washington it never goes that way some of those teams that are in the preseason top 15 will slip and some teams that you don't think are going to do anything and maybe what you're telling me is you think washington state could be one will be better and so we'll see we'll see where cu fits in there i my guess is they will, and it's a complete guess, upset somebody early in the season that you weren't expecting, and everybody will be like, see, Dion's a genius. And then when the depth issues kick in, uh, so you're thinking four rough, and eight. Rough ending. You're thinking four yeah, and eight. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. As always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. How did we get away with the things we used to do? Jumping off bridges, spinning down here